Hope everyone can see the screen all right. Um, it's a little bigger, I guess. Um, no, I, I want to say a quick word of thanks. Um, people kept reminding me, many, many people came up to me and said, hey, we might not have a screen on, on, on Sunday. And um, they were being extremely kind and, and letting me know ahead of time. How, however, I also think it was like a dare to, I bet you can't write a sermon that doesn't have a PowerPoint with it or do a Bible class that doesn't have one. And, well, I prepared everything uh, to not have one. And then when they told me at the 11th hour that, hey, it's going to be available, I'm like, I can't help myself. Um, so I went ahead and made one. Um, Anyways, this morning, uh, this is, I guess, part two, uh, part two of a series that, that I wanted to do, uh, looking at what Jesus tells the disciples on the night before uh, he is betrayed. Remember in John, uh, John 13, 14, 15, and 16, he's sitting there with his disciples and he's encouraging them. Uh, a lot is about to change uh, for, for Jesus, but particularly for the disciples. And Jesus is, is getting them prepared uh, for that change. And you'll remember what he says in John 13, verse 35. He says, By this all men will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. And in those final words with his disciples uh, before his, his death, this seems to be his, his emphasis. He's wanting them to know this is what you need to do if you are going to be my disciples. You are going to love one another. And he even comes back to it in his prayer uh, in John 17. Jesus is praying to God and he prays that his disciples would be unified. And in their unity they would prove God's, or, or God's love for humanity in the way that they are unified. So through the obvious way that we love one another, we proclaim God's love for the world, and we also proclaim our love for God. And last week, we looked at how we ought to be hospitable to one another. We looked at uh, the book of Acts and how hospitality is found everywhere, and how can we show love for one another in the way that we are hospitable. This week, I'm going to look at a passage in Colossians chapter 3. You can go ahead and open up your Bibles there if you'd like. Colossians chapter 3, and while you're turning there, I'll tell a, a, a personal story. I remember when I was a kid, um, I had a, my, my fifth grade teacher had a poster on her wall, and it actually had the golden rule on, on, on the poster. Now, I didn't attribute it to Jesus or anything, but the words at least were there. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And I remember as a kid, I really liked that statement. Because in my mind, as a, a fifth grade boy, my mind was like, all right, that means at recess, that kid who has the football, well, if he's following the golden rule, he's got to give it to me. He owes me that football. But then it kind of dawned on me, but wait a second. What, what, if, what if he wants the football? Well, I guess that, I guess that means that I have to now give it, give it to him. What do I do? I was in this moral dilemma. Well, then I went outside, and that mean kid didn't even share the football with me, and, and I, was, I was at a loss. And I, I realized that day, the golden rule is really hard. It's really hard because some people don't follow it. And then as I've gotten older, I've come to realize it's even harder because some people who do follow it, follow it in the childlike way that I interpreted it, which is others should follow it more than I do. I think the golden rule is a, is a tall task for us. On the surface, it does carry with it this kind of childlike interpretation of sharing a football at recess uh, because someone else wants it or sharing a piece of cake or something like that. 
But I hope you understand it goes a lot deeper than, than that. When we start looking at what we truly need in our lives. I think we all truly need healthy relationships. And so what does that mean? I need to do my best to be a healthy relationship for somebody else because I know I am in desperate need of that. And maybe it goes to the practical things, uh, helping somebody move. I've been in need of, uh, of, of moving and someone helping me in that regard. So maybe I ought to be a little bit more aware of other people's needs and do that as well. Embedded in this golden rule is that you're aware of other people. You're thinking of other people. You are trying your best to serve other people as they need service. Not just in the way that you need service, because those two things don't always go together, but we're thinking of the way other people are in need. I think Paul describes this idea pretty well in Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3, beginning in verse 12. It says, So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another, and forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Now, I'm reading from the New American Standard Version that's on the screen there. But I'm going to guess, no matter what version you're reading from, most versions say, as I have highlighted on the board there, bearing with one another. Now, that phrase, bearing with, I, I, think, I think we can interpret that in a lot of different ways because we often think of what it means to bear with one another uh, in our own sort of ways. I like the way the American Standard puts this. It puts it in a more old-timey sort of way. It uses the word forbearing one another. Have you used that word this week? I'm going to guess not. Uh, we don't use the word forbear very often, but that's the word you're going to hear a lot this morning. What does it mean to forbear one another? Because it's different than using that word bear as we often, as we often use it. And as we look at this word, what we're going to look at is how, by our forbearance of one another, we are showing all men that we are disciples of Jesus. And so as we explore this word and how we ought to treat one another within it, we're going to look at what it means, who it involves, when we're going to use it, and why we ought to use it. We're going to look at the what, who, when, and why concerning this particular word. So let's define the word forbearance. Again, we don't use it all too often. The word literally means to hold oneself up against. So you can kind of picture like a wall crumbling down and you're kind of holding it up. You are forbearing that wall and you're going you're gonna to bear the load that's coming down on you, but for the purpose of holding it up. Vine's Dictionary says it's self-restraint in the face of provocation. So you're being provoked to act in a particular way, a negative sort of way, but you're showing a certain amount of self-restraint as far as that is concerned. Obvi uh, often associated with anger and things along those lines. But essentially, if we were to put it pretty uh, plainly, I think it essentially just means to put up with. But that usually comes with a pretty negative connotation, right? Jesus actually uses this very word in Matthew chapter 17 and verse 17. He says, how long shall I put up with you? He doesn't use it in a very positive light. If, if I'm saying I'm having to put up with Bob, does that reflect very well on him? No, not very well. So I'm not going to use the word put up with, but, it, but really, that's kind of what it's talking about. We're going to use the word uh, forbearance as we go through this, though. 
And it's also associated with these words. You can look at these words as synonyms, associated with the word patience, enduring, long-suffering, but then that word bear as well. See that in Galatians chapter 6 and verse 2, bearing one another's burdens. But I want to, I think it's important for us to kind of differentiate between those two words. In Colossians 3, again, we saw forbearing one another. Galatians chapter 6 and verse 2, bearing one another's burdens. I don't think those two things mean the same thing. But there are certainly some similarities as we look through there. Uh, again, we looked at forbearance, to so hold oneself up against. In Galatians 6 and verse 2, it means you're carrying something. And so in this, both are implied that there are two people involved, right? So if you're looking at Galatians 6 and verse 2, um, the, the implication is that there, has, there is a difficult circumstance going on. If you go back into verse 1, it seems to indicate a sinful circumstance that one person is kind of bearing the load of. However, in Colossians chapter 3, in Colossians chapter 3, there isn't any particular circumstance. There's not like this scenario is when forbearance is to be shown or something along those lines. It might be that you are tolerating someone's selfishness, but it might also be that you're just kind of tolerating the person at the end of the pew who keeps bouncing their leg up and down and shaking the entire pew. It might mean that you're tolerating the person who talks all the time and you can't really figure out a way to get out of their conversations or the person who you just simply can't get to talk and you're constantly trying to figure out conversation starters and stuff like that. We forbear in those situations. It's not limited to a particular circumstance. But both do imply a burden. In Galatians chapter 6, though, it seems as though that burden is being shared, right? If you're talking about uh, a person in a particular sinful situation, you're carrying one end of it and they're carrying another. Now, how the weight is distributed, that's not very clear, but it does imply that there is a weight being shared. You can kind of think of it as maybe you're helping a brother or sister get over like a drug addiction of some kind. You're going to bear that load in the fact that you're checking on them, in the fact that you're helping them, you're, you're talking with them, you're, you're really you're trying to show them love in the way that you're helping them. But that person is certainly bearing a load as well in the struggle of trying to overcome that. And so there is this implication that there is a burden that is being shared on both sides. Forbearance, on the other hand, you alone are the one holding that burden. Because after all, that guy at the end of the pew, he's bouncing his leg up and down. He's not bothered by it. The guy who keeps talking and, and, and you don't know how to get out of the conversation, he doesn't mind talking. The guy who's silent, he doesn't mind being silent. You alone are the loser in this situation. But that's the idea of forbearance. I think we also see this idea in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And that's uh, exposition on love and what that looks like. Even though, I'll admit, the word itself isn't actually used here, but you see all of its synonyms kind of piling in. I think you see what forbearance looks like based on how love is defined. You see uh, some of those related words. You see patience in verse 4 showing calmness in the face of things that might bother us, whether they're sinful or not. In verse 7, it says, uh, it, you see the word bear again, that we are bearing all things except in this verse, that word bear doesn't mean to carry. 
It means to, to roof over, which probably doesn't simplify anything. But I want you to think of like you're kind of covering something up. Like if you're truly showing love to someone, you're not trying to expose all of their sins to everyone. You're not trying to show them off to anybody else in some negative fashion or something like that. Actually, you're showing more of a protective sort of thing. You're covering up. You're covering them over. And then in verse 7, you endure. You're doing all of these things with like no, no limit to the duration of time, right? You are constantly enduring these things. I think forbearance shows that. But you also see what forbearance is not. Forbearance does not seek its own, as it says in verse 5. The one who is showing forbearance isn't out to please themselves. They're not demanding any type of personal rights be met. Rather, they're okay with being taken advantage of to some degree. Verse 5, they're not provoked. I think this implies these angry outbursts. Like, there's no straw that breaks the camel's back as far as one who is showing forbearance. You don't see these huge outbursts of anger. And then I love this phrase that's used uh, at the end of verse 5. It does not take into account a wrong suffered. That phrase, take into account, so that's a, that's a legal term. Uh, that's like, you're, you're, this is legal terminology implying that you're not keeping a list of grievances, right? You're not uh, uh, tallying all of someone's sin and just saying, well, I got to add that one to the list or something like that. Because what it's, doing that seems to imply something is owed to us. But the one who is showing forbearance isn't seeking its own, remember? They're not looking at what this person might owe me. We're not keeping a list of annoying things that that person does, waiting for them to say something about it. And we're not pouncing on everyone who does something wrong for something um, against us or anything like that. What you see in love is someone who is showing forbearance to one another. Last thing I want to look at as we try and define this word is looking at it in terms of forgiveness as well. Because the two times in these two mirror passages, Colossians chapter 3 and Ephesians 4, forgiveness is mentioned alongside forbearance. I do think these two words are associated with one another, but there is a difference between them. There's a degree of suffering that comes to both, the one who is, who is uh, forbearing somebody else and the one who is forgiving. However, forgiveness is this decision in a single Moment, Like, think of it in terms of, like, an accounting. Like, say um, I, I loan Andy 20 bucks, and then he, he doesn't have the 20 bucks to pay me back, but I forgive him of that. That is a single moment that I am forgiving him. Now, if I loan him again, then I can forgive him of that debt later. But forgiveness is a, is a, is a single thing that we are doing in that moment. Forbearance, on the other hand, is just this continuous attitude that we have. I think it's a heart thing. It's showing this attitude that really serves as the foundation for forgiveness. So, if you struggle with forgiving people, perhaps you should work on forbearing one another. The better you are able to tolerate other people's actions, the better you would be able to forgive one another. If I could define forbearance just in a short sentence, which you probably wish I would have done just at the beginning, Forbearance is an ongoing suffering we choose in love that serves as the foundation of forgiveness. You see how forgiveness, or excuse me, forbearance is, is difficult? It's because it, we are choosing to suffer. We are choosing to suffer out of love for the sake of other people so that we might be able to better forgive one another. So how do we show that we are disciples of Christ? 
We choose suffering out of love so that we might forgive people who wrong us. All right, so who do we show forbearance to? To whom do we show forbearance? Well, you certainly see it from parent to child. Any, any godly parent ought to be uh, showing forbearance to their children, and there's no need to go into the minute-by-minute basis on which we do that, especially younger children, but it's important that we do that. It's important that we forbear their shortcomings because, after all, they're learning. They are young. They're trying to, to figure out this world, and we have been given to them as a way to help them navigate this. And so we, so we show them patience. We show them gentleness as we forbear their shortcomings. But I think you see it from child to parent as well. There's a lot of ways in which children forbear their parents, because after all, especially those of you who are uh, the oldest child, man, you are the, uh, the, the test case for parents, right? I've, I've, I've often joked saying it's a shame that they give first-time parents uh, a, a child because they don't, they don't know what they're doing, but that's, that's really the only way it works. Um, but children forbear their parents as well. I think some, though, some children are, are adults now. And they're at a point in their life where they're having to take care of their parents. And many of you in this room know what that's like. And there's a certain level of forbearance that you show your parents in that regard. But some children are not adults. And yet, their parents have bad habits, maybe even sinful habits, that they're having to forbear. As children and brothers and sisters in Christ, which is a really strange dynamic, you forbear your parents in that. Some people are in that situation. I think we certainly see it as far as spouses are concerned. This might be the most obvious one for those of us who are married. Because after all, this is the person that you see every single day. And therefore, uh, you have the most opportunity to annoy or bother that person. The most opportunity for forbearance. I think that's the most diplomatic way of saying it. I think we certainly see it in spouses. But the the last two is what I want to focus on. We're supposed to forbear one another. Our brothers and sisters in Christ. After all, that is the context of Colossians 3 and Ephesians 4 where we find these words. So how well do we forbear teachers, or preachers, elders and deacons, needy saints, widows, other people's children, maybe people uh, in class, people outside of class, the way we deal with one another? Do we forbear one another? Are we showing that to them? And then lastly, just Others, non-Christians in general. How do we forbear people at school or work or neighbors, drivers on the road, or that shopper who decides to leave their cart in the middle of the aisle, or the person who decides to try and sell me insurance at one in the afternoon and wakes up my sleeping child? Like, how do we forbear those people? Because I'll tell you what, the way in which we do that is the way that we prove that we are disciples of Christ. So when? We know to whom we're supposed to show forbearance. But in what situations do we show forbearance? Do we do, do we do it only when they ask for it? Well, there's certainly a level of accountability uh, that each of us has uh, to relieve the burdens of others, to assess ourselves and see whether people are having to tolerate annoying habits or things like that. We ought to be uh, accountable of that. However, and I know you all know this, There are times that we don't even know we're bothering somebody. We don't even know we've offended them in something that we've said or done or something like that. 
And I would hope, especially if we're, if we're thinking of the golden rule, I would hope that you would be patient with me in my annoying habits. And you would be gentle with me if you choose to correct those. Uh, that that you, would, you would view the way in which you interact with one another through this, through this golden rule. But the idea of waiting for someone to ask for forgiveness, the, the, the idea of waiting for someone to ask for patience, implies that list-making that we were talking about before. It implies that you're waiting on them to ask because you feel as though they are indebted to you. And the longer they wait, the larger that debt grows. So, as a brother continues to bother us or offend us, we just, we just add it to the list. We just uh, add to the list of things that, that, that they owe us. We justify our anger because, after all, they haven't apologized. Do you hear the golden rule in that? No. Nobody wants to be treated like that. We want patience from others. So do we do it only when they ask for it? Well, no. But only when it's something that's out of their control. Only when it's something they can't control. We seem to be much more tolerant of others when, uh, when their annoying habits are something that they can't control. Like, uh, sure, I'll give, it's inconvenient for me to give this person a ride to church, but you know what? It's the only way they can get here, so that's, that's fine. I'll do that. And that's good that we do that, by the way. It's good that we are willing to be tolerant of people's uh, habits that are out of their control. However, what makes, this, uh, what makes this difficult is when there are disagreements as to whether it's out of their control or not. Because after all, that's our own assessment. Like maybe you let a neighbor borrow a tool or, or a book or something like that, and he loses it or ruins it. To them, it was just an accident, but to you, you're like, wait a second. I've heard that he's done something like this before. You know, I think they're just inconsiderate. I think they're careless. And you just add it to the list of people that you refuse to let borrow your stuff, right? Or maybe you're at work um, and you have a coworker who just keeps messing things up. Or they're taking forever on a particular project. And the explanation as to why really is just that they're inexperienced or they're truly incapable of doing whatever you've told them to do. But you chalk it up to them being lazy. And so you add it to the list of people that you refuse to work with. You see, when we start making these type qualifications, well, it's rather difficult to, to stick to them. It's rather difficult to apply because we all have different opinions as to what is in somebody's control and what is out. Okay, well, we'll, we'll show forbearance in those things, but I draw the line at when it causes me harm. Do we show it only when it doesn't hurt? Because what if... What if that neighbor or coworker is so unreliable that they've actually put me out of a good bit of money? What if they've cost me some money in what they've done? Or their careless mistake has, has caused me to get physically harmed in some, in some way, and in that way has, has put me out of some money as well. Well, in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 12, Paul says, And we labor, working with our hands, being reviled, we bless. Being persecuted, we endure. When people speak ill against us, what is Paul's response to that? We bless them. When people physically harm them, what is Paul's response to that? We endure. Do you hear patience in that? Do you hear forbearance in that? Again, if we are the one practicing forbearance, as we defined it earlier... You are the loser in this situation. You are the one who is carrying the burden. You are the one suffering, and that's okay. Well, 
we draw the line at sin, right? We will not tolerate another person's sin. Because after all, that would be sinful as well. Well, what if, like before, we disagree on whether something is actually a sin or not? But we don't, we don't do that, though, right? Every single one of us has the same exact definition of what is and isn't a sin in this room, right? So like the broken tool or the ruined book or the incompetent worker example from before, they do those things and we attribute that to uh, them being selfish. And we treat them as if they are ones who are living a life in error. And so we feel an apology is owed to us. And again, we're back to that list making. We're back to people being indebted to us. That doesn't sound like a Christian practicing forbearance. But of course, there are situations in, in which people sin. And they sin, it against, they sin against us. And sometimes people do it intentionally. And sometimes they have no intent on stopping. So what do we do in that situation? How do we treat those individuals? How are we supposed to confront them, if at all? What do we do? There's a description in 1 Peter 3 that, that I, I go to a lot and I like. 1 Peter 3, beginning of verse 1, says, In the same way you wives be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives when they, when they observe your chaste conduct accompanied by fear. This woman seems to have an unbelieving husband, or at least one that is disobedient to the word. And how is it that she wins him over? And not to her own, her own side, but wins her over uh, to Christ. How is that done? Well, I'm going to guess that this person has totally different motivations than she does, uh, driven by selfish desires, even though he might be a good guy. And yet, even though she, he may have sinned against her, her response is without a word. Her response is by her chaste behavior. That is the way that this individual is won over, by her conduct and her example. Does that mean we never correct sin? No, if you've ever read through Paul's letters, there's certainly examples of that as well. So what do we do? How do we correct those who are in sin if something verbal is required? Well, look at 2 Timothy chapter 2. I just have a few verses on the screen, but I think looking at the larger context will be good. 2 Timothy chapter 2, there's an interesting passage here. Paul is instructing Timothy to be patient with and to gently correct those who are in opposition, as it says in verse 25. Those who are in opposition. Now, I'll admit on the surface this sounds like those who are, who are in opposition to you, Timothy. Those who are opposed to you, here's how you deal with them. And there might be some of that there. But when you look at the, the tense of this word, it seems to imply an inner conflict. Those who are in opposition within themselves. I think similar to what Paul describes in Romans chapter 7, this inner conflict that somebody is having. What do we do when someone is in opposition here? I think you see that in the text, right? Look at verse 25, um, or look at verse 26, excuse me. And they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. The description seems to be someone who... Uh, willfully, I will admit, willfully wandered off a little bit and then was trapped by the devil, has been held captive by them. How do we correct one who is in that situation? 
There's certainly guilt upon this person, uh, or else Paul wouldn't say to correct them at all. Gentleness and patience. That's how these individuals would be corrected. You hear forbearance in that? You see patience when someone is truly struggling within a sin. If they refuse to give something up within the day, how do we show them forbearance but by showing them patience as they try and work through this? I think you see something similar in 2 Timothy 4 as well. Again, he's telling them to preach the word with great patience. But who is he correcting? Who is he showing great patience to? But it's people who are wanting to have their ears Tickled. I think a similar person from 2 Timothy 2. It's not that they're without any type of guilt or any type of sin. Clearly, they're wandering off trying to hear something new. But at the same time, it's like they've been entrapped by somebody else. And the way we correct them is with great patience. And I think that's a really difficult thing for us. To show great patience to those who are willfully sinning. But it might be because we don't truly see them as one who is being ensnared by Satan. The one who is being captured by him. Because what we often want to do is jump straight to those harsh uh, judgments. And we see those in Scripture. But what's interesting is it seems as though Paul saves these sharp rebukes and corrections for elders who lead people astray. Um, for teachers who are divisive, and leaders who take advantage of the weak. The, the, the exposing people in their sin is often reserved for those people in those leadership roles. Other people are treated with this great gentleness and patience. How are we doing with that when we are correcting other people in their sin? But correction without the proper motivation will fail. The motivation when we are correcting people is, as we see in James 5, that we are trying to save a soul from death. We're trying to save that person. Or in Matthew 18, as Jesus describes, we're trying to win over your brother. Again, not win them over to your side, but you're trying to win them over to God. So even in correcting, the motivation isn't yourself. You're not trying to correct them so that they stop those annoying habits just so you can live a life of peace again. No, it's you are trying to help them. The emphasis is your service to them. But again, think of the golden rule. If we were in error, we would want to be saved from death, and we would want that to be done with gentleness and patience where it is needed. Lastly, why are we going to show forbearance? Because after all, it's understandable why we would lack motivation to practice a concept that, that makes us a loser in like all situations. So what, what, why, why would we do this in the first place? Well, Romans chapter 15 and verse, uh, verses 1 through 3 say that it's for the weak. You do it to protect the weak. I think we are all weak brothers at some time in our life. However, in the context here, he's talking about a brother who has pretty different ideas as to what you can and can't eat or what you can and can't celebrate. Is this a, a, a reason for us to divide? No. But we're going to show them forbearance. We're going to bear with them in this for the sake of that brother. Because we don't want them to stumble in the same way that Christ did it for us. Not to please himself, but for others. We show forbearance so as to not get in the way of the gospel. 
We don't want to hinder the gospel in any particular way. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 6, beginning of verse 3, he says, We give no offense in anything, that our ministry may not be blamed in labors, in uh, sleeplessness, in fastings, by purity, by knowledge, by long-suffering. There's that, that similar word again, by kindness, by sincere love. We don't want to do anything that might get in the way of the gospel. Do we get in the way of the gospel in the way that we explode at other people? Or the way in which we nag them in the little things that they need to improve in their life? Or in, in, in the ways that we, uh, we, we bother other people or self-righteously call out other people? I'd say we do get in the way of the gospel when we do those things. Ephesians 4 emphasizes that we preserve unity. That's part of the reason why. We show forbearance for the sake of unity. Again, the whole discussion, the whole context of this discussion is in terms of unity. We forbear the new Christian that is just learning what modesty is. We forbear the preacher that we don't particularly enjoy listening to. We forbear the culture that might have a different idea of, of what start time means. We forbear uh, the political climate that we live in, not wanting to contribute to its disunity and chaos. We forbear these things. But we do all of this to imitate God. Romans chapter 15 talks about how we do it because Christ has done it. But God has shown us forbearance in many different ways. God's forbearance is shown in the way that He has passed over sin as it's described in Romans chapter 3 and verse 25. Whom God set forth as a propitiation by His blood, uh, speaking of Jesus, through faith, to demonstrate His righteousness. Because in His forbearance, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed. There's a requirement on us to show forbearance to others, because God has shown forbearance to us. 2 Peter chapter 3 talks about how He has held back Judgment in his long suffering, be diligent to be found by him in peace without spot and blameless, and consider that the long suffering of our Lord is salvation. He has held back judgment in his long suffering for us. How are we showing that to one another? And it's to lead us to repentance. God has shown us forbearance to lead us to repentance. Do you despise the riches of his goodness? Forbearance and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance. I hope that the most convincing reason why we ought to be showing forbearance to one another is because we have seen God constantly show forbearance to us in our lives. So how are we going to show forbearance to one another and thus show to the world that we are disciples of Christ? We're going to do it motivated by love. Again, thinking through 1 Corinthians 13, thinking through the golden rule. We're going to forbear because we know that it's beneficial to others. We understand the purpose of forbearance is for the well-being of others and the unity within the body. But ultimately, we do it because God has shown it to us. God has given us an example of forbearance. If you're not a Christian... Do you know that God is showing you forbearance right now? He is showing you that patience for the purpose of bringing you to repentance. It's a wonderful thing that God created the world, but equal to that is the fact that God sustains the world. That God keeps it going. And why is He doing that? 
so that you might come to repentance. Second Peter 3 and verse 9, God is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. But just as Jesus asked the question in Matthew 17, how long shall I put up with you? The answer to that question was not, not long. There is an end to that. Judgment is coming. God is patient and forbears our weaknesses, but judgment is coming. Take advantage of God's forbearance. Have it lead to repentance in your own life. If you have any need of this repentance that you need to do in your life, please come forward while we stand and while we sing.